You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight I have, uh, we're going to do something that I've never done before. We're actually going to talk about African frogs. I have uh, David Blackburn, and he's done a tremendous amount of research on African frogs, and we're going to get into their taxonomy and some different issues with uh, conservation and biology, morphology, all sorts of cool stuff. And I've been really looking forward to this because for the longest time we focused primarily on South American frogs, particularly dendrobatids. Obviously, they're my favorite. So we're going to get into that, and we're going to cover some new ground, which is going to be a lot of fun. But uh, of course, before, ha- uh, before all that, you usual uh, stuff to get out of the way. Uh, thanks again for the nice five-star reviews. I want to give a shout out to uh, a listener who gave me a really nice five-star review with some really nice comments uh, recently. And I'm going to try to pronounce your name as best I can. I think it's Lenyador123. Uh, I read the comments. Thank you for the nice review. I'm really glad that the show helped you out. Uh, this particular listener uh, found the show very helpful for vivarium planning. And I'm, I'm happy that uh, happy that I could help. I'm happy that the guests that I had on could help as well. So that's a great thing. Thanks for the nice five-star review. If you guys are looking to support the show, it's a great way to do so. And, uh, of course, check out the link the uh, link tree in the show description. I've compiled all of the different links for the show into one link tree, and that'll bring up the merch store, that'll bring up the Patreon, and uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify if you want to click on those directly to get to the episode. So uh, I found it's a nice, easy way to just get everything in there. There's also a link to in situ Ecosystems. I am now an affiliate of in situ Ecosystems, so... If you're looking to save 10% as a listener on a nice quality vivarium that's really geared towards frogs, that would definitely be the way to go. Click on the link, make the purchase, you will get 10% off, and a small commission comes back to me at absolutely no cost to you. So those are some great ways to support the show and get some pretty cool stuff. So uh, other than that, I, I want to get into it because I'm looking forward to this for some time. Uh, David, welcome. How are you doing tonight? Thank you for uh, coming on the show. Hey, great! Thanks very much, Dan. Thanks uh, very much for the invitation. Yeah, it's my it's my pleasure. I've I've been wanting to do a show about non South American Central American frogs for a long time, and there's just such a, a a host of amphibian biodiversity in, in Africa that I think many of us overlook because we're kind of focused on Central and South America. So I, I want to get into all that, but why don't you give us a little bit of background about you first? Why don't you tell us your story? What were your earliest experiences with amphibians like, and what led you to where you are today? <laughs> Great. So uh, thanks. I, uh, I, you know, I was not a kid who uh, who had much experience with amphibians. So when I uh, was in high school and college, my interests were really in paleontology. Um, and sort of towards the very end of college, I, I, I was not a biologist. I, I got interested in the idea of looking at living organisms instead of fossil ones and uh, sort of became enamored with salamanders, um, partly after seeing uh, Dave Wake, who passed away last year, give a talk um, and, and really wanted to work on salamanders, salamander diversity of Mexico and Central America and um, part of that was about keeping animals alive in the lab. Uh, it turns out I'm actually quite bad at keeping animals alive. It is not my talent, uh, probably unlike many of your listeners. Uh, I am very good at keeping them uh, dead, uh, which is, makes a great museum curator uh, for that, that point of view. So, um, you know, my first experiences with amphibians uh, really came actually from museum collections, not actually from live animals, even though, you know, seeing them in zoos and aquaria as a kid. Uh, most of my first introduction to amphibians was from behind the scenes working in scientific collections. Um, and through sort of a twist of fate, uh, that first collection uh, that I started really, you know, working with and seeing the diversity of amphibians in 
uh, was Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology. And that's significant uh, here because Harvard had a very strong African collection, um, a historian, an old African collection. And, you know, a lot of the amphibians that I was uh, sort of perusing the shelves and trying to teach myself about amphibian diversity, uh, a, lot, a lot of that was African diversity um, and became really kind of interested in, in learning a lot more about these animals that, you know, for the most part had names, but, you know, very little natural history and biology uh, behind those names. Yeah, I, I love comparative anatomy, especially with, with frogs. I, I took a class through the Amphibian Foundation about a year and a half ago. And, um, yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Mark Mandika went into a, a very, very long uh, lecture about um, taxonomy and um, the evolution of, of, of different frog species and whatnot. And um, there was a lot of similarities morphologically, obviously, between um, like Mantellas, for example, in Madagascar in terms of, of the coloration and whatnot and the Dendrobatids, even though they really were not related like at all. I always found that interesting. I, I always interested in uh, convergent evolution and then morphology and really what makes things go together. And obviously, you know, what makes amphibians go together has always been uh, an interest of mine. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, one of the things that really hooked me early on as an evolutionary biologist was was just that, you know, uh, pattern, especially patterns of convergent evolution. Um, amphibians are an uh, awesome group of organisms for studying that just simply because they have a, you know, within frogs or within salamanders, within Sicilians, there's a common body form. Uh, but that body form evolves again and again and again for, you know, tree frogs or terrestrial frogs or aquatic salamanders. I mean, you see, you see this convergent evolution happening again and again and again. Um, that provides us such a great opportunity for trying to understand why, you know, if you only have one instance of something uh, that happens in evolution, the trying to get into the why and how is complicated because you only have one instance. But uh, with having all of these multiple evolutions of different types of forms across amphibians means that we get a little bit more power uh, to try to understand, you know, how and why uh, some of these shapes, colors, sizes, strange reproductive modes, uh, why they evolve. One of the things that I think many people, I guess many, one of the things that many people mistake is thinking that f frogs in particular are very, very basal creatures and they're actually so much more derived than we think. I mean, I was guilty of this myself. You, you think of a frog automatically, you think of, I mean, at least here in the U.S., we kind of think of like a, like an American bullfrog. That's kind of like the default, you know, idea of what we, what we think a frog is, but in reality, the the morphology runs a, a gambit from fossorial to terrestrial and everything in between. And you're right, the amount of biodiversity and the amount of different um, morphologies and whatnot, it's just, it's, it's a lot. I mean, it's funny because people say, well, you like frogs. I'm like, I don't like frogs. I love frogs. And they're like, they're boring. I'm like, no, they're not. And I'll show them a picture of Dendrobates, uh, Tinctoris azureus, it's a bright blue or, I'm trying to think of another species, uh, like pixie frog, for example, which is it, this massive eating machine. I don't know if you've ever run into any of those in your studies in Africa, but they, there's uh -huh. so much, okay. so much of variety. But now you've made like a lot of formal studies about this and you, you have your own lab. So th that's actually how I found you was I found some of your research and I, I found the, the lab. Do you want to tell us about the Blackburn lab a little bit first and then we'll get into some of the more specifics of some of the research that you do? Sure, sure. So I am um, a faculty member 
at the University of Florida, uh, where I am the curator for amphibians and reptiles at the Florida Museum of Natural History. And so uh, my research group, my lab is based there um, at the museum. Um, we, for the most part, you know, the it's sort of assembled from uh, myself, our collection staff that oversee our scientific collection and preserve specimens, uh, the graduate students on my lab, most of whom come through the Department of Biology, but I have some from the School of Natural Resources. Um, and then, you know, many undergrads, uh, postdoc scientists, we have scientists that visit us from really around the world, sometimes for a week, sometimes for a year. Uh, and, you know, collectively, the thing that we're most of us uh, are really interested in uh, tends to be amphibians, although sometimes reptiles creep in there, uh, tends to be amphibians, and it tends to be questions in a broadest sense about their evolution and diversity. And that means really everything. So uh, just to give you a sense of the type of research right now, you know, we do projects on population genetics of tropical frogs to understand the, the role that sort of forest expansion and contraction in the past has had on uh, leading to the evolution of new species and divergences between populations. We do projects on microbiomes. We have students that work on fossil frogs. Um, we have, you know, projects that look at the diversity of traits of frog in a broad evolutionary context. So, you know, the gains, uh, the gains and losses of traits such as, you know, the presence and absence of teeth or, or using skeletons to understand sort of convergent evolution in, say, you mentioned burrowing frogs before, you know, so convergent evolution and body form between backward burrowers and forward burrowers. So really it's sort of a, almost everything under the sun that sort of relates especially to frogs, uh, frog biology. Um, we, you know, and a lot of the field research we do is in, has historically been in Central Africa, uh, sort of in a bubble going from, say, Nigeria south towards Angola. Um, but we also do a lot of museum-based research with scientific collections, not only here at the museum, but also from museums all around the world. What about I mean, we, we kind of, you kind of explained it to me earlier about Harvard having the really large African frog collection, and that's just sort of the direction you took. But is there anything particular about African frogs that warrants study as opposed to, say, Asian frogs or uh, frogs in the New World? Like, what's unique sure. about Africa that makes studying them apart from all other areas in the globe? Well, I, uh, yeah. So it's an interesting question about how I ended up working on African frogs. So, um, I, I'll give you the shortest answer. The shortest answer was that um, I had a little bit of priming and interest in Africa before I started grad school. Uh, I sort of fell into it because Harvard had a great African frog collection. But there were two other pieces of this that really sort of appealed to me. Uh, and that, that is more of personality traits <laughs> of myself. One, one is that it was hard. Uh, it's, it's difficult working on these animals. Uh, these are species that span multiple countries. So like just logistically trying to assemble information about a given species is hard because it's in multiple languages. It's specimens are in multiple museums that are in different countries. The logistics of doing fieldwork are simply hard. Um, and also the other thing that attracted me to it was just opportunity. You know, it wasn't uh, like working on dendrobatids where there's a whole lot of people that have an interest. Uh, this was a field that had it still still has relatively few people, although it really has expanded over the last 20 years, you know, relatively few people working. And and I'm someone who's always been interested in sort of anatomical diversity and the and form and function. 
And there were just so many frogs that attracted my attention, especially in Central Africa, where I've spent much of my time. So that's that's species like hairy frogs, Trichopetrachus robustus. Um, it's species like uh, the genus Petropodetes, which are sometimes called antenna frogs because they have a weird fleshy papilla that sticks out of their tympanum. Um, you get things like Cardioglossa, which are you know, you you mentioned mantellas and dendrobatids in the same sentence earlier. Weirdly, cardioglossa kind of sort of look like them, but nobody really knows, you know, you know, are they toxic? How bright are their colors? That stuff hasn't been studied. There were just a lot of different types of body sizes, uh, you know, and thinking about body sizes, the goliath frog is in this area of Africa. A lot of types of reproductive modes, a lot of types of... Um, you know, just strange traits that we just didn't really understand. And so that really kind of sucked me in uh, to wanting to know more. It was also an area that at the time had, you know, frankly, like 20 years ago, uh, relatively little, uh, few people working in the area, um, a handful of Europeans, one or two people in the U.S., um, actually very few scientists from Central Africa, um, and that's better now than it was 20 years ago, but a relatively small community of people doing this work. And, you know, in the very beginning, a lot of this work was, and, and still is, but I think we've moved past this. In the very beginning, it was sort of focused on what are the species? Where, where are they found? Uh, is the same species that's in Nigeria, also this species that's in Cameroon and Gabon and Equatorial Guinea, um, just trying to connect the dots to say like, okay, yes, this is a single species that occurs in all these places. That sort of legwork um, takes a lot of time. Uh, and, and then, you know, in the past 20 years, we've really moved a lot farther along. And now a lot of the questions are, beginning to shift more into questions about evolution and population biology, uh, slowly into things about reproductive biology, in, in a way sort of parallel to sort of the world of South American frogs and Central American frogs like dendrobatids, where there is a huge community of people working not just on taxonomy, but all these other aspects of their biology. So African frogs have slowly kind of moved to that point over the last 20 years. It's interesting the reference you made to cardioglossa. That's I, I'm on your website right now, and that was one of the things that originally caught my eye was how similar they look to to dendrobatids mm -hmm. to the point where if I looked at this really really quickly, I mean I'm seeing some species that look very very similar to, I mean well Adelopus really isn't a dendrobatid because yeah. it's it's a buffo, but um, look, there's yeah. a species that looks like Adelopus. There's a species that looks like uh, Amarega. There's a species that uh -huh. looks like um, dendrobates, uh, erratus, there's, there's, they look very, very similar. I mean, is that an example of convergent evolution? Yeah, it's a little unclear. Yes and no. So I can, uh, when, uh, the very first species of cardioglossa were described, they were actually placed in the family dendrobatidae. Um, and if you look back, there are a couple maps, although this was a sort of short lived phase in amphibian biology, but you, you can find a few maps where people map dendrobatidae as both in Central and South America and Central Africa, the Central Africa or cardioglossa. So there are some similarities. Uh, they are terrestrial frogs. Uh, they also lack teeth, just like dendrobatids do. Um, they seem, from the few species that have been studied, to eat a lot of ants and mites, so somewhat similar. Um, at least some of the species can be rather colorful. Um, they can sometimes be found in the daytime, 
Uh, the most of the time when you find them, it, it tends to be at night. So they're certainly not as, you know, conspicuous as like, you know, walking around Costa Rica and seeing strawberry dart frogs just out in the middle of the day calling. But, you know, there are some similarities. One of the challenges of these frogs is that, uh, you know, for most of them, their biology is very poorly known. Uh, and a few of these species, especially the ones that occur in the mountains of Cameroon, um, you know, seem to be in decline. You know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these species are much harder than they, much harder to find now than they were 20 years ago, uh, and that really interferes with our ability to know more about them and make comparisons to dendrobatids. You know, if we want to study, like, do they have toxins in their skins? Is like, well, we still, even if we don't collect it as a specimen, we still need to get a live animal and get some skin secretions from them and begin to understand if there's toxins in them. And so, if we can't find the frogs, it's very difficult to sort of answer these questions you're posing about convergent evolution. And it's just, it's such a broad palette of species. And, um, well, I, I'll tell you what, like, since we're, we're talking about maybe getting a little bit ahead of it, um, why, why don't we back up a little bit and kind of talk, uh, talk about frog morphology and evolution a little bit more general. So can you just start us off? Let, let's, let's walk it through it from beginning up until now. Can you walk us through frog evolution as a whole and then maybe lead us into the evolution of some more specifically African species? Like kind of just give us the whole picture from when it started up Ooh. until now. All right. That's great. So uh, in the first in the first few hours of this conversation, I'll. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So. OK, where to start? So I think one of the things that's the most remarkable about frogs is that um, they're familiar to almost everybody on earth um, in terms of you know their body form, right? All, you, if you took almost any of us and put us in a different part of the world and you saw a frog, you'd know it was a frog, right? Um, and the remarkable thing is that that's pretty much true for the past 200 million years, right? Frogs have looked like frogs, at least in terms of their you know, their body form, in terms of you know not having a tail, in terms of having these really compact bodies with a typically a pretty big head um, and even inside of them their skeletons have been basically very very similar for 200 million years so that's kind of spectacular right and it's it's also a reason why sometimes frogs are held up by creationists as sort of the proof against evolution because well look they're they look the same you know they haven't changed when the, the reality is they, they have changed in countless ways but they they've done it with basically a, a similar core toolkit that they just vary in little ways here and there um, across time. But the, of course, as, if you're a frog biologist, you realize that the most interesting things about frogs aren't really their skeleton. It's their life histories and their behaviors and their reproduction, all these sort of things that are, frankly, very hard to see in the fossil record. So uh, for about 200 million years uh, or more, really, we've had frogs on on the planet uh it seems that early frog uh at least based on what we know from this is this is sort of an inference based a little bit on fossils and then a little bit based on sort of the the living diversity we see today it looks like you know um probably in the triassic and the early jurassic a lot of the sort of lineages and diversity of frogs that we see was really concentrated in the northern continents in europe asia north america um, and a major thing that sort of happens in frog evolution is uh, this sort of this large radiation of frogs that happens probably in the lower Cretaceous. So, you know, 150 million years ago, 
this sort of separation of this big lineage that uh, starts evolving in the southern continents in Africa and Australia and South America. So that big radiation uh, today represents about 90% of all living frogs. So those early lineages that we can think of, like the tailed frogs of the Pacific Northwest or Liapelma from New Zealand, uh, you know, Korean fire-bellied toads, uh, Pippa Pippa, African clawed frogs. Uh, you know, there's a lot of these lineages, spadefoot toads, that are sort of these early diverging lineages that are still with us today. Many of them are from, not all, but many of them are from these northern continents, right? They're from, they're from North America, Asia, Europe. But then there's this big radiation of frogs that's referred to as the sort of new frogs, the modern frogs, the quote, neobatrachia. Uh, and that lineage explodes and starts evolving in South America and Africa. And by sort of the middle of the Cretaceous, so let's say about 120, 100 million years ago, it's separated into two very major lineages that represent sort of the biggest patterns in frogdom forever after, right? So there is a big radiation of frogs that occurs in South America, so those are the frogs that today that you think of as, you know, they've already come up on the show. Toads, uh, dendrobatids, uh, Pac-Man frogs, um, most tree frogs that you can think of. That is this large group of hyloid frogs from South America. And at the same time, there's a large radiation of frogs that happens across Africa. And these are the ones that, you know, generally are a lot less well-known. Um, it includes frogs that are near and dear to my heart, but out of that African radiation also comes things like the ranids, with the true ranids, things that are like the American bullfrog, right? So you have sort of by before the extinction of the dinosaurs, so this is just something good to appreciate. So before the extinction of the dinosaurs, these major patterns of frog diversity are already in place. Right, you've got these sort of early diverging lineages that are in the northern continents. Then you have these two big radiations happening separately in Africa and South America. When the extinction of the dinosaurs happens, so about 65 million years ago, there's an interesting pattern that seems to emerge, at least when we look at like uh, building evolutionary trees out of genetic data. It, it seems to support um, multiple lineages evolving very rapidly right after the extinction of the dinosaurs. Um, and today those lineages represent really important groups of frogs. So it includes like the microhylid frogs. It includes a big radiation of frogs that um, include things like bullfrogs and uh, the African pixie frogs you mentioned. Um, it also includes like the sort of big bulk of hyloid frogs in South America. So even though the pattern of you know where these lineages were found was already set before the extinction of the dinosaurs. That huge extinction event seems to have been uh, sort of a, a somehow caused this massive uh, evolution of all these different families that we see today. And what that seems possibly to be related to is you know at the end of the uh, the end of the Cretaceous when the dinosaurs go extinct uh, when this a massive object plows into Earth and causes, you know, catastrophic death in terrestrial ecosystems. You know, forests disappear. Terrestrial ecosystems uh, kind of go up in smoke very quickly. So one hypothesis is that as the forests rebound, 
um, in South America and Africa, you have these lineages of frogs that persisted, but start taking advantage of these new opportunities of these ecosystems that are sort of reemerging after this massive extinction event. And that's where you see a lot of this uh, evolution of new types in South America and a lot of these new types in Africa. So if you looked at Africa today, are you with me? Yeah, I, I just, <laughs> I have one question though. Yeah, go um, for it. And you feel free to touch on this when you, when you get to it. What role did the shift in tectonic plates have in this divergence? Because I'm curious about that because obviously the continents today are not what they were millions of years ago. So if, if you can work that in. Yeah, so great question. So just to tie it really clearly, um, you know, by the time that Africa and South America were, uh, when they were together, Definitely, um, it seems that these lineages that today gave rise to all the hyloids and ranoids in South America and Africa, respectively, that seemed to have, the, those groups seem to have originated in these southern continents when Africa and South America and Australia were more connected to each other, when they were much closer. And as those continents, especially South America and Africa here, start drifting apart, you actually start seeing, that, that seems to be coincident with the divergence between the hyloids and the, the ranoids. Um, if you play that forward in time, you actually also see, although much later, uh, so after the extinction of the dinosaurs, you also see uh, uh, probably dis uh, lineages that arise on India when India is actually separated and sort of floating across the Indian Ocean before it plows into Asia. Uh, there seem to be a few lineages of uh, frogs that were kind of stuck there. Same with Australia as it sort of drifted away. Um, and, and there were, just to be clear, there there is at least a little bit of evidence that there were, in fact, frogs in Antarctica. Antarctica used to be a lot warmer and more tropical than it is today. Uh, and it seems very, very likely that, you know, for the, the frogs that were going back and forth between Australia and South America, that, you know, they'd have to probably pass through Antarctica. Um, and the, the little bit of fossil evidence we have from Antarctica you know, does suggest some sort of connection there. So there were some recently some fossil frogs from Antarctica that were described that are um, that were referred sort of generally to the the helmeted frogs of Chile, uh, the Calyptocephalella, these sort of giant, ugly, flat-headed uh, frogs that are sort of semi-aquatic, but also occur in these arid areas. So there are frog fossils of those from Antarctica. Uh, so as these continents drift, um, the lineages that are stuck on them, you know, begin evolving. And so in Africa, to go back to Africa, the, the lineages that we start seeing that evolve in Africa, uh, it, it seems pretty likely, although there's some uncertainty here that microhylid frogs, like the narrow mouth toads that you see in North America, um, that those frogs first evolved probably in Africa uh, and then sort of exploded and, and sort of spread around the world. Um, we also have frogs in the so-called Afrobatrachia. There's a group of frogs that includes the Hyperolidae, uh, so the, the reed frogs of, uh, of Africa and Madagascar, as well as the Arthroleptidae, which are the families that include the squeakers and also the hairy frogs. The other big radiation of frogs that happened in Africa is this, this, other, fan, this other sort of radiation that gave rise eventually to bullfrogs. But, but early on, uh, those lineages that are found in Africa include things like goliath frogs, they include the sort of African rocket frogs, they include the um, the African pixies that you mentioned earlier, um, and, and families like that. And so you have, you know, the, much of that evolution starts happening in the past mm, 50 to 30 million years. The thing that's kind of mind-boggling as a frog biologist to think about is that 
you know, on the, on the face of it, if you go out into the forest, you see all these different frogs around you and you think of them all as sort of like, uh, you know, they're all here together. But the reality is that they have this very, very deep evolutionary history and these different lineages of frogs at different times have moved around the world in different ways. And so trying to use um, fossils and molecular genetics gives us a little bit of a window into sort of untangling, you know, how these communities we see in the forest have become assembled over time. So, David, I'm curious, we, you mentioned before about the extinction of the dinosaurs. Did that cause any kind of a, a bottleneck in frog diversity around that time that radiated out again afterwards, or was the biodiversity kind of maintained through that period? Yeah, that is an awesome question, and one that we don't really have an answer to. Um, I can say that historically, um, there has been a perception among, even among amphibian biologists, that well, amphibians are good at just eking out an existence. Uh, Dave Wake used to say that salamanders' great talent was persisting. <laughs> that was what they were good at. They've been here a long time. They've managed to eke out survival, even when big extinction events happen. What's kind of hard to, uh, to say, though, is whether or not extinction events really mattered to frog communities. And I think we have some tantalizing evidence to suggest, yeah, it, it did matter. I mean, it also makes sense. You know, it would make sense that frog communities would be affected just as much as all these other terrestrial vertebrates around them and in extinction events like the end of the Cretaceous. So the two, the two pieces of evidence that sort of are suggestive, uh, one is from work that we've published that just using uh, data from uh, living species and sort of molecular genetic data from living species that seems to suggest like putting these evolutionary trees together that after the extinction of dinosaurs, like shortly thereafter or around the same time, you start seeing this explosion of new lineages. Frogs had been here well before that, but you sort of have like a long fuse and then the extinction of the dinosaurs happen and boom, all these lineages evolve. Um, so that's one piece of evidence. The other, and I'll come back to what it means in a second. The other is that there is one <laughs> unpublished study uh, from the Hell Creek Formation in Montana that uh, looked at basically the stratigraphic layers before and after the extinction of the dinosaurs and, and sees bits of frog fossils there and actually seems to show a a change in the diversity of, of forms across the extinction event, as well as a reduction in the number of forms. So like, you know, this is mostly looking at just bits and pieces of bone, right? That's normally what we get in frog fossils. But even from the bits and pieces saying, you know, it looked like there were more types before the extinction event and a lot fewer types after the extinction event. Um, and so what we think might've happened just as a hypothesis is that, you know, first of all, there were frogs before the extinction of the dinosaurs, probably plenty of frogs. Um, we don't really know a ton about the types of frogs, not only in terms of like, well, what family they were in, but also about their biology. You know, where they're, you know, today when we look around, we see fossorial frogs, we see ar arboreal frogs, all sorts of terrestrial frogs. You know, we have this rich diversity. Did that same rich diversity exist before the extinction of the dinosaurs? Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell. Maybe maybe a little bit of it did, but honestly, we just don't really have the information at this point to say one way or the other. Um, but what seems to have happened is there's a big extinction event um, of other animals, 
And it seems like right after that, you start getting this explosion of new for new lineages of frogs. My guess, if I just had to speculate wildly, is that there were a lot of frogs. There was a lot of extinction. You had a few lineages persist. And as these ecosystems recover, you start seeing these lineages diversify into all of these empty niches that are available in forests and wetlands and things like that. Um, and sort of they're effectively replacing probably what was there before. Um, but that's, you know, we just have so little information on what was there before. It's just hard to get that out of the fossil record at this point. How well do frogs, how well do they stay preserved in the fossil record compared to like dinosaurs or yeah. mammals like how do they how do they hold up over time yeah it's hard um a lot of the fossils that we have are just bits and pieces of little bones you know the end of an arm bone uh part of a vertebrae um we do sometimes get super lucky um especially when for frogs that live in like wetland environments where there's very like low flow to the water so if an animal dies and it slowly like you know sinks to the bottom of a pool say a pool that doesn't have a lot of oxygen at the bottom uh, those are great environments to get fossilization of like whole bodies or most of a whole body so a lot of times the really impressive fossil record that we see for frogs when you see like a whole body skeleton uh, th these tend to be aquatic frogs or at least probably around a pond or a wetland i mean there's there's still, you know, there's no evidence of a tree frog from, you know, the time of the dinosaurs. But, you know, look how many times tree frogs have evolved among all the living species we see. You know, how how plausible is it that there were no tree frogs during the time of the dinosaurs? They might have been tree frogs in some totally different lineage, but they don't have a great fossilization potential. You know, right? Like, look at the living species. These tend to be small species. They tend to live in forests where if you die and... Uh, sort of decompose in the forest, there's not great potential for you to become a fossil, right? You're not necessarily going to get buried in a river. And if you do, it's probably in a stream or a place that has a lot of moving water that's going to break up your body, sort of basically isolate you into tiny bits. And then trying to sort of read those tiny bits to infer things about the biology of these extinct frogs is very challenging, <laughs> very challenging. So um, it's something I'm deeply interested in. Um, and we've we've talked a lot in my lab about like, well, what are the what are the low hanging fruit here where you could say something? So just to give you an example, I mean, it sounds silly in a way, but it's also still valuable is is body size. Like how well can we take a tiny little bit of broken bone of a frog and guess how big the frog was? right? It turns out we can actually do a pretty good job. And the reason that's interesting is that even from bits of broken bones uh, from a fossil site, we could actually still get an estimate of like, what is the distribution of body sizes in this community? In the same way that that might be interesting in like, you know, if I'm in Central Africa, I am interested in body size and looking across all the species we find, we find, you know, these rich tropical environments have lots of little species, lots of big species, lots of middle-sized species. Um, and, you know, we might be able to get some of that information out about the ecology of these ecosystems uh, from these bits and pieces of fossil bones. All right, here's a question for the, the paleontologist in you. Out of the species that are represented in the fossil record, how many do you think were out there total as opposed to what's represented? I mean, it's just kind of a speculation. I mean, you can't really tell, but is there any, any guess? I mean, we have, we have so 
little of what was there. I mean, I'm just confident of that. It's right now it's even hard. You know, look, if if you let's just pick a group. If you're in the Caribbean and you're on the islands um in the the greater Antilles like the Dominican Republic, almost every frog, not all, but a lot of the frog species that you could find while you're there are Eleutherodactylus, right? Um, they're diverse. They're really interesting. They have different calls. They're found in different parts of the ecosystem. There's little ones, there's big ones. Um, but you know what? Their bones all look remarkably similar. So if we just had a fossil record of bits and pieces of those frogs in those communities on, say, the Dominican in the Dominican Republic, we would have a really hard time guessing how many species were present just on their bones. So even when we have a good fossil record, trying to make this leap about, you know, well, how many species does this really represent, right? Because a lot of the anatomy can be quite similar among many of these frogs. It's very hard. Beyond that, you know, we have whole ecosystems that it's, it's just, we would guess we have very little fossil data for. So a few years ago, um, I published a paper with some colleagues in China that provided the, a fossil frog from Burmese amber. So this is from the time of the dinosaurs and the Cretaceous. Um, these are animals, there's, and there's, there's bits of birds, there's bits of feathered dinosaurs, there's even ammonites and all sorts of animals that have been stuck in amber uh, and then fossilized. And you know, sure enough, we got some frog pieces in there. So I was, of course, immediately excited to see like, oh, like what if we got tree frogs? Because like tree frogs, they're never showing up in these other types of environments. So we did, we worked on these, published them a couple of years ago. Um, unfortunately, kind of hard to, there's nothing obvious about these to call these tree frogs. Um, they're probably some form of like terrestrial frog from like an early divergent frog group. Um, but we do only very, very rarely get instances like that where we have, um, you know, in this case, fossils from a, a wet tropical rainforest. I mean, we never get fossils from places like that. And of course, if you can go around the world today, where are all the frogs? Wet tropical forests, right? These are the worst places to find fossils. So I'm sure if you look at the fossil record, it's just a tiny fraction of all of the species that have existed over the last 200 million years. It's one of those things that always kind of intrigued my my curiosity because I remember, I remember being a kid, there used to be specials on, and this was a long time, this was on network television, there'd be a special maybe once or twice a year about dinosaurs. And mm -hmm. it was always some dude who wore this like big straw cowboy hat. And he was, I don't know if you remember him or not, but he was a paleontologist and he did all these specials and he was always out in like the Badlands or some, just some arid place where these fossils, dinosaur fossils came out in relatively pristine condition. They were preserved very, very well. And then you think about places like Central America, Central Africa, where really like nothing is going to fossilize just because of the way that the the, the dynamics of the soil and the moisture content, like no, nothing is going to get preserved there. And if it is, you're never going to find it, right? Yeah, we do. We do get fossils from a lot of these places. So, you know, there's it's not as bad as it might seem at first. Um, it's, it's still not great. Um, but one of the things that's kind of interesting about studying fossil frogs is that a lot of people that have worked on fossil frogs have been interested in fossil frogs. <laughs> and the, the reason I say it like that is because they haven't been very clued in to living diversity of frogs, right? So, you know, I'm a biologist. I work mostly on living species. And I have a very, very much like I'm looking to fossil frogs from the present to the past. 
a lot of paleontology has been conducted the opposite way, which is looking from the past to the present. Uh, and so by looking from the present to the past, you know, I'm I'm willing and interested to kind of use all of our knowledge of living frog species to try to interpret what these frogs in the past were. So sometimes we only get bits and pieces, but I think we can still say a lot more, even if sometimes it's hard to say like, well, what which family does this go in? I mean, that can be remarkably hard. But we might be able to say other bits of things about them, like, um, you know, what is the ecology of this animal probably like? You know, how big was this animal? Um, I have a graduate student who works on fossil frogs right now who has um, one or two really remarkable uh, upper arm bones from uh, the, the Mayas, so say like, I don't know, 20 million years ago in Panama um, that have lots and lots of crests on the bone. So like big ridges and bumps. That's exactly what we see in uh, living male frogs, especially male frogs that have a lot of like male-male combat. They tend to have these really robust arms, you know, that they're they're grappling with each other. So they have all sorts of ridges and, and doodads sort of hanging off of their upper arm bones. And so Maria has turned up one or two bones of that, which is really cool because it begins to give us an insight into like, oh, look, like, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. But yes, frogs probably 20 million years ago were still doing the sort of same things that we think frogs do today in terms of, you know, males fighting with each other for mates and things like that. Right. So um, I think there is hope. One of the things that for me has been most exciting is that um, a lot of frog biologists in the past or paleontologists, frog paleontologists in the past have, you know, say, let's say they were in Argentina or they were in Canada. Um, well, you know, if they were trying to make comparisons of fossils to living species, you know, they only have a small number of living species in Argentina or in Canada that they could get skeletons from that they could then make comparisons of the bones they're finding to the living species, only a small handful. So now, you know, we have the ability through uh, CT scanning and sort of digital x-ray to actually create models of the skeletons of literally every frog on earth and put it online to really help, uh, in this case, frog paleontologists all around the world be able to compare what they're finding to any type of frog, not just the ones that happen to be local where they are. Uh, and that is really beginning to open up like a whole new era of trying to figure out what these fossil frogs were and how they evolved and what they were actually doing in their ecosystems where they occurred. That's actually leading into my next question, which was about the, the technology, because mm -hmm. I guess when you think about comparative anatomy, like you, like you said, it, it's, you're trying to put things in categories that are very similar to, I guess, well, you're trying to put things together in, in like, like categories together. So how do you reconstruct a frog from something so simple as like a single bone or a single vertebrae? What's the technology you're using? I, I went over it, and I'm, I'm kind of familiar with what CT scans are. And there's a technology called overt. Do you want to maybe let, like, give us a hypothetical. Let's just say that I come to you as a student or, or a researcher, whoever I have, like you mentioned before, I have a bone. How do we reconstruct that frog, and how do we compare it with other species technology-wise? Yeah, so, um, so normally uh, how this would play out, if you were a... a a student coming to the museum, you've got either a, a frog that's a new, a, it could be a living species, right? A new species that you found recently. You think it could be new. Uh, you want to describe it. 
so that could happen. Or you might just have like from a fossil site, a couple bones, and you're trying to figure out like, what is this thing? So museums have long served as the resource for that, right? You can come and compare your new species to the sort of library of scientific specimens that are housed in many museums around the world, make those comparisons, recognize, you know, what are the traits that really help to distinguish this, you know, potential new species from all the other species that it's related to. In the same way, you know, our, our museum has, I think, somewhere between 12 and 14,000 uh, skeletons, not just of frogs, but of lizards and snakes and turtles and crocs. Uh, so we have a lot of paleontologists that use our collection exactly for that purpose, which is they've got things that they're trying to figure out what are these things, and they can come and look at these skeletons that we have. So here's a catch about museum collections. Um, while now we've 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 worked as a community around the world to make the information about our specimens more available. Like there's databases online. You can you can figure out what museums have representatives of what species. Like it's not every museum is online, but a lot of them are. So like you can really do a lot very quickly to figure out where things are. But if you want to make those comparisons, it's like the 19th century. You got to either uh, visit it in person or the museum has to mail it, the specimens in the mail to you. Um, so, you know, like you always say to students, like become a specimen, see the world. We, we put specimens, scientific specimens in the mail. They, they get shipped around the United States. They get shipped around the world to scientists uh, doing projects. But as you can imagine, there's all sorts of reasons why that's a problem, right? So first of all, you know, we don't tend to do that with rare species. We don't tend to do that with really important specimens that we can't replace. Um, you know, there's a lot of places we simply won't mail anything to. And there's lots of people that don't have the resources to travel to all these museums. So... What we've done instead of that, um, and it's one step to sort of solving this as a problem, is we have a large project called the Open Vertebrate Project, or OVERT. Uh, so the Open Vertebrate Project was funded by the U.S. National Science Foundation. Uh, it's over the past five years grown to a network of about 25 um, universities and museums across the United States. And these institutions are together collaborating uh, to generate CT scans of scientific specimens in their collection. And so CT scanning is basically a, a form of uh, digital x-ray, right? So like when you, when you get an x-ray at the doctor, you think about seeing your skeleton. Why? Because your skeleton is the most dense part of your body. So that's what you're visualizing. So when we do uh, x-rays or CT scans of, you know, a dead frog preserved in alcohol, the main thing that we quickly are able to see is the skeleton. So very quickly, we can reconstruct a three-dimensional model of the skeleton. And I can press a button and email that to somebody on the other side of the world. Wow, that's so much better than trying to like package a bunch of little frog bones and put them in the mail and hope that in three weeks they get to wherever they're going, right? So we can do a digital version of that now. Um, those data are up online um, that, you know, teachers can use in classrooms, hobbyists that are just excited to have a frog skull, you know, those data are there for personal use. Um, so there, there are opportunities of getting those. And the, and the Open Vertebrate Project was not just about frogs, although Granted, we did a lot of frogs because I was overseeing it, uh, but it's also about all vertebrates. So really trying to generate these type of data for every genus of living vertebrates. So fishes, and it's a lot of fish, fish, fishes, birds, mammals, frogs, lizards, snakes, oh my, everything. Um, and so now having these digital anatomical data in hand, 
Um, and this is just for the skeletons, but we, we also have ways of visualizing the soft tissues so we can see the cardiovascular system or the brain or the internal organs. Um, but by being able to very quickly see the insides of these animals, especially their skeletons, boy, that really helps us for uh, trying to have comparisons for describing new species, for trying to interpret, you know, what are these bits and pieces of fossil frog bones we have? Now we have a library of literally almost every single genus of amphibian online uh, that, you know, they're the real data. You can actually uh, work with these data. You can manipulate them. You can you can make a 3D print of a skull and print it out. Uh, you can, you know, do sophisticated shape analyses on the bones to try to see how your fossil fits in with the shapes of all these other living species. Um, and one of the fun things about CT scans is that sometimes we get what we call a natural history bycatch, which is the other stuff that's inside the frogs or the specimens that we didn't expect, right? So uh, we we get eggs, you know, we can see how big and how many the eggs are. We can see uh, what was in their stomach. We can see parasites inside of them. We can get natural history data for species that, you know, we, they might have a name. The species might be described scientifically, but there may be zero natural history. Right. There's just literally nothing known about it other than that it exists. And so um, these CT scans enable us to get all of that type of data out of some of these uh, scientific specimens as well. So if I, as just a layperson, wanted to look at this material, I wanted to look it over, mm -hmm. how would I go about accessing it? Yeah, sure. So we have a couple different resources. So the main place that we um, put all of our data up online is a website called Morphosource. Um, I'll send you a link so that you can put it in the associate with the podcast. So in Morphosource, um, it's it's really admittedly very or, uh, very oriented towards scientists. Uh, but if you know scientific names, you can type the scientific name into the search bar and you will bring up all of these different datas. Uh, so you will see CT scans. You will also see 3D models that have been created from those CT scans, like skulls or skeletons or just a tooth or just a long bone, whatever. Um, so that that's basically the repository where we share, uh, all, all of these institutions share these data is Morphosource, which is a project uh, that's based at Duke University and uh, supported also by the U.S. National Science Foundation. The other place that we put a lot of uh, materials, and it's it's not all of the data, it's just 3D models that normally we're, we're generating for a classroom exercise or uh, for a, under, a lab and undergrad anatomy or a museum exhibit. We put those data up on Sketchfab. So Sketchfab is a website that was originally sort of geared towards 3D animators, allowing 3D animators to share the things they were creating online. Um, and a lot of cultural institutions, so like art, you know, art museums that have sculptures, uh, places that have you know cultural heritage objects like statues, archaeological sites, started using Sketchfab as a platform for sharing 3D representations of the stuff in their museums. Um, and a lot of anatomists have also sort of gravitated to that. So there's a lot of really cool, uh, rich anatomical data for you know all sorts of organisms that are online. So my lab shares a lot of data and 3D models that we create um, on Sketchfab. So, you know, we have, uh, for instance, you know, colorized and labeled skulls of different amphibians and reptiles. So if you're trying to teach yourself skull anatomy, you know, there's resources online there. If you're trying to understand, you know, 
uh, sort of homology and diversity of like the limb bones of uh, vertebrate animals. You know, we have uh, a lot of models on there to sort of guide, you know, guide you through that. Um, and so we use Sketchfab a lot for sort of education and outreach. And then we use Morphosource really for just sharing our data broadly with really anybody, but really more towards geared towards scientists. But we do have a lot of educators and artists download the data from there as well. Question. And this may seem like a completely odd and bizarre, bizarre question, but could nope. you take that information and let's just say that, it's a, say, say that it's a newly discovered species, you're able to reconstruct it. Could you convert that into something that you could print out on a 3D printer and have an actual physical representation yep. of it? Really, you can. Yep, yep, yep. Same stuff, same data. Yep, so we do that pretty regularly. Um I mean, it's great for, I mean, it's just great in general. It's very fun, obviously. Um, I can tell you as an anatomist, like I love 3D printing very tiny things, very large. It gives you a totally different appreciation for the anatomy of something very small when you can print it very large and hold it in your hand and turn it around. Um, and the, the nice part is that, you know, I might not want to give an eight-year-old visiting my collection a Tuatara skull to hold. Like we have one. It's pretty cool. Scientists use it. I probably don't want to hand it to an eight-year-old just in case they drop it, you know. But I don't have any problem handling them a 3D-printed version of the same skull. Um, and that's great because we can replace them. We can make 100 of them. Um, and that is really a powerful thing, right? So the same data that's really useful to a scientist to do sort of sophisticated statistical analyses of shape variation to figure out what this fossil is, that same data can be converted, yes, exactly, into a 3D file that can be printed on, you know, any, really, any 3D printer with a little bit of work um, that you can hold in your hand, you know, yes, this is the skull of this new frog species that was just described. That's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> that must be pretty amazing to take a species that no one has ever laid eyes on and physically bring it to life in a physical form. Yeah, it is really cool. and I think. Um, you know, it's cool. It's it's cool for fossils, but it's also cool for living species, right? I mean, we have very rare species of frogs that you know maybe only a handful of people on Earth have actually ever seen. You know, regardless of whether or not it's the scientists who saw them in the field or it's local communities that live in this forest. I mean, really, only a handful of people ever have probably laid eyes on some of these animals. Um, and trying to be able to find a better way to sort of share information about those animals, not just, you know, a description of where you found it or what it might have been like or what color it was, but actually like a, a real 3D version of it. That's really powerful. And I mean, we're still a little bit away from being able to create, you know, in the field, um, at least cheaply in the field, like photorealistic 3d colorized models of living frogs it has been done um so duncan urshik who's based at the university of massachusetts in amherst uh has like a really awesome sort of photo rig and has multiple cameras that all take photos at the same time basically of a you know a living animal so we can create these through photogrammetry these 3d colorized models of a living frog um it's pretty time intensive and, and cost intensive at the moment, uh, but it's coming. You know, we're coming to the point where we're going to be able to create these 
3D models of live frogs from anywhere around the world and be able to share those online. You know, it will it replace the the same experience of being able to like hold that frog in your hand? Well, no, not I hope not. Um, I hope there's still live frogs I get to hold in my hand. But at the same time, you know how valuable that is as a sort of a, a sort of a visceral experience of you know holding in your hand a 3D print of Petafrini from New Guinea and being like, oh my God, this frog is small. You know, just having that experience where it's totally different than seeing just a picture on a page about how small that frog is, right? So yes, we can make these 3D prints of these animals and really give you a connection uh, to something about those animals in a way that you know otherwise just not possible. Another morphological question for you, and then I, there's there's a couple other African things I wanted to touch on before oh, yeah, we, before sure. we wrap up. But um, this just kind of came into my mind all of a sudden. I, I remember in the in the course I took with Mark Mandika, we talked about Beelzebufo, which was this mm. massive um, frog that, that was theorized to look very much like a ceratophrid, like a like a horn frog uh-huh. or a Pac-Man frog, as they call them, and it was very very large. You mentioned before about the kind of basic frog body type. Why wasn't there more radiation in terms of, say, size? Like, why didn't we have gigantic mm. frogs? We have really, like, minuscule frogs, but only relative to what we have out already. Why didn't we have massive frogs or frogs with long necks or frogs with long tails? What what was so perfect about them that they stayed within that body form? Wow, you have like zeroed in on like a $10 million question. Yeah, I don't know. It seems that something happened here with frogs. And, and there, there's a lot about the frog body form and how constrained it is that given all the crazy things that frogs do, it is surprising, right? Like they pretty much get to eight vertebrae before between their head and their sacrum. And that's it. You know, they're stuck. That's where they are forever after. You know, they evolve this sort of tailbone, the Eurostyle. Um, that's it. You know, there's no there's there's no basic variation on that. You might have a shorter one, a longer one, one that has a little spine on it, but like you're stuck. You're stuck in basically the similar one body form. Um, you know, most of the variation that and I'm gonna grossly generalize and i'm sure deeply offend somebody but like you know most of the variation you see in frogs is in their the relative lengths of their hind limbs right some are really short and stubby some are really long um you see the lengths of their toes on their feet right like they're really long they're really short they're webbed they're not webbed and then you see a lot of variation in their head you know how big is their head relative to the rest of their body do they have a jaw joint that like goes back behind their you know where their their vertebrae touches their skull um you know so things like pac-man frogs for instance like they have a huge mouth right their mouth is so big that it's actually behind uh where their head connects to their vertebrae right uh, but then you also have these like super tiny mouthed frogs and there's plenty of little tiny mouth frogs where their jaw joint is effectively underneath their eye right that's it. I just described basically all the axis of <laughs> frog skeleton diversity for 200 million years. That's it. You know, they basically, there's all these other features of frogs that they all have. They all have a fused radioma. They all have a fused tibia fibula. They all have, you know, a, sort of a weird uh, ankle bone. That's two bones that are sort of not quite fused, but almost fused together. Um, that's it. You know, they all they all lack, except one species, teeth on their lower jaw. Um, they, they really like found something that worked and can't escape from it. Why is that? We don't really know. 
you know, is is it somehow deeply connected to the evolution of the tadpole? You know, is, is there something about that that form of life history that sort of has locked in the adult morphology and, and makes it somehow less likely to vary than if you're looking at like, you know, mammal diversity, right? I mean, bats and whales. I mean, obviously those look radically different from each other, but those are more closely related to each other than like, you know, the deepest lineages of frogs are. Right. So like frogs are really ancient and have long evolutionary histories, but they're sort of sort of trapped on an optimum somehow of adult body form. Um, why is that? We don't we don't quite know. Um, the stuff about body size is also really interesting. So I also uh, had so Beelzebufo, when it was first described, was estimated to be much larger than in subsequent papers where they sort of downsized it. Uh, so it, it probably was among it probably was similar in size to some of the largest frogs that we have today. That's sort of the, the guess estimate. So if you had a huge Pac-Man frog or a huge African pixie, uh, maybe something like Kenrawa Goliath, that's probably how big Beelzebufa was. It probably wasn't as big as originally estimated to be. Um, but that said, it wasn't like the size of, I don't know, uh, a cow, <laughs> you know, like there were no frogs that were bigger than that. In fact, there's no, uh, at least among frogs, salamanders, or Sicilians, there's never been any of the sort of modern amphibian lineages that have ever gotten that big. Um, what's up with that? I don't know. You know, could there be constraints about, you know, their respiratory system that, you know, they're just sort of limited by the amount of oxygen they can have. Um, you know, when you think about lungless salamanders, it's like, well, you 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 imagine you must hit some upper limit where if you don't have lungs, there's just only so much oxygen you're going to be able to absorb across your skin. So, you know, like getting huge probably doesn't help you very much. Um, yeah, but what what really is like the upper size constraint in frog evolution? Um, so it's yeah, it's a it's an interesting and really cool question that uh, you know I think we're we don't really have a good answer for. Obviously, for the other end, I mean, there's extremely tiny, tiny frogs, right? I mean, we're talking these frogs are as an adult would fit on your pinky fingernail comfortably, right? These are frogs that are somewhere between you know, eight millimeters and 10 millimeters long as an adult, <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's it. That's as big as these things are going to get. So um, we actually have a paper that's about to come out that's on uh, the biology and jumping of some extremely tiny frogs. So uh, keep your eyes out for that. It should be a fun news story. That's got to be interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, I, I want to just cover a few African species, though. Sure. And um, go for it. One... I'm going to kind of bring out a left field, but you probably saw it coming anyway. The, the Goliath frog. Have you ever had any experience with that in the wild? Have you ever actually seen one or studied it? Uh, yeah. So Goliath frogs um, mostly occur in Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea. And and not the island part of Equatorial Guinea, but the mainland part of Equatorial Guinea. Um, Goliath frogs have a relatively small geographic range, which is surprising because they're very large animals. Um, they occur mostly along very fast-moving streams. Um, they do co-occur with some other species of the same genus, the genus Kenrawa. Uh, so there is a the second largest sort of uh, goliath frog. It is not a goliath frog. It's called Kenrawa robusta, sort of like two-thirds the size of a goliath frog. Um, yeah, you, you see these out at night. Um, you can eye shine them. They have 
you know, huge shiny eyes and these uh, fast-moving stream systems. Um, and Kinrawa goliath is is a species that's really is probably threatened um, uh, simply by human consumption. So you know, you can uh, there's a lot of commu- local communities that. Uh, continue to harvest wild uh, goliath frogs and also uh, the smaller species conrawa robusta um, at least in some parts of sort of central western cameroon uh yeah so anyway yes i have some experience with them um it's not been a a, a focus of my field research but um uh yeah anyway if you have specific questions about conrawa i'm happy to happy to answer them. i just remember seeing pictures of them as a kid and they were always this sort of I don't want to say like a holy grail, but they just seem like one of these species that seemed to be like larger than life. And there was always just so little information about them. And I, I remember actually seeing them on price lists in the nineties uh-huh. and, and then yeah, that yeah. kind of just disappeared. But I yeah. mean, can you, can you kind of just maybe just kind of quickly just walk us through their life cycle in terms of like, I know you mentioned their range, but how do they, how do they start and how how long does it take them to mature and what, what are their living conditions like? Like what's, what's their natural history? Yeah, that's interesting. Some of these things we don't really know. Um, I will say just at the start of this, and I can give you a link later, I actually summarized uh, everything known about their biology and natural history in a amphibia web species account <laughs> for Kenrawa goliath. Uh, and what's kind of interesting about Kenrawa goliath is, you know, this is a species that would described, I don't know, 120 years ago. Um, and from the very beginning, you know, goliath frogs cause a sensation. From the very first large specimen sent from Central Africa to England, uh, to Georges Boulanger, who described the species, you know, having this giant, massive frog that like, caused a sensation among the zoologists um, in London at the time. And so throughout the 20th century, there's been a lot of... Um, a lot of like zoos and aquaria, people that are interested in actually uh, showing off these live animals in captivity. And they are just truly awesome, just giant frogs. Um, what's interesting, though, is that to my knowledge, there's never been a successful uh, attempt at breeding these in captivity. Um, and part of that really kind of probably ties into their their natural history. So the these frogs tend to occur along uh, very fast-moving um large streams in tropical forest uh they the tadpoles are you know stream adapted tadpoles uh there was recently um a study that showed that it it seems that adults and females i actually can't remember from the paper but adults sort of excavate either either use a natural depression in the riverbed or actually sort of push around the sand and dirt to sort of make a depression Uh, and that's actually the site where the the eggs are laid so it's still part of the stream but it's sort of like a set aside depression within it Uh, and then the eggs and then the tadpoles you know the eggs are laid there and then the tadpoles uh, grow and, and develop and sort of hang out in these sort of excavated depressions. Um, there might even be a little bit of sort of nest attendance. At, at least, you know, there's some uh, camera trap videos showing these large animals like hanging out near uh, these depressions in the streams in the evenings. So what that means, kind of hard to know. Um, these are animals that, uh, let's see, what other fun facts about a goliath frog? So um, they eat a lot of uh, predominantly aquatic uh, prey. So there's like a lot of aquatic, sh- uh, a lot of freshwater shrimp in these ecosystems, crabs. Uh, they'll certainly eat other small vertebrates if they can catch them, including other frogs. Um, 
Let's see. They have been described sometimes to skitter, which is remarkable. Uh, there is a short note that actually describes uh, frogs leaping from the side of the water and then skipping across. Uh, they have sometimes been observed to bask uh, on sort of uh, stones in the middle of the river during the day, which is pretty cool. Um, they're much larger than other species in the genus. So uh, there's only currently, well, actually, we just described two. So I think there's, <laughs> I think there's eight, eight current species in the genus, um, but it's much, much larger than really any of the other ones. Um, and males and females are also both very large. You know, it's not like one is super huge and the other is smaller. Um, you know, and these things, they tend to be associated with fast moving streams and and sometimes like waterfall type areas. And so they they really are in these sort of more primary forest, larger stream systems, uh, which is interesting in Central Africa because of course there's a ton of frogs that are um, that are smaller, but also occur along streams, but they, they tend to occur along much smaller streams and certainly not like small rivers. Uh, they're really these st small streams that are sort of tucked into the forests um, and closed canopy and they're slow moving. And that's where you find all sorts of other stream adapted frogs in this area. In terms of say like numbers, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at amphibia web yeah. right now. And they're listed as endangered. I don't see a CITES listing, but if nope, you were if you were to go into their habitat and like, what are the odds of actually finding? Are they are they common? Where they like where they can be found? Are they common? Or are they generally rare? Like, how mm. would you like? What are the odds of finding one if you want to go if you wanted to go look for I think one? If, I think if you're in the right place, the odds are pretty good. The question is, you know, are you in the right place? <laughs> So um, I've seen them, you know, in the in a couple places, you know, you'll see them out at night with eye shine. Um, they're hard to catch, just to be totally honest. I mean, they're big aquatic frogs, so they're powerful and swimmers, so they can disappear quickly. Um, you know, the, some of the work recently to camera trap them has really been uh, sort of a great way of capturing information about their biology without actually having to catch the animal, which is a good advantage. Um, but especially... Some parts of Western Cameroon, around like uh, Kongsamba, Manjo, those towns, you'll you know you you should be able to find them. Uh, but their numbers are probably declining in those areas because they are sold on the side of the road for food. They're sold in local restaurants. Um, in Southern Cameroon, um, there's a large forest reserve, sort of a park called Campo Man, um, and that has a lot less human activity in it. Um, and so they're I think they're quite common among some of the river systems there. That's not an area I've worked in, though. That must be incredible. It's one of those things I would just... I always wondered why you never saw them in zoos. And it's funny that the, the, the stream habitat, which seems to be really, really difficult for people to replicate in captivity. And I know that was a big stumbling block with, with Adelopus, at least uh -huh. here in the U.S. And I I, um, I mean, for the listeners who've heard, Nick, Nick Stacy's been on the episode twice, and he successfully bred at least two species of Adelopus by... I mean, it was on a small scale, but it was still a pretty grand scale, recreating yeah. that stream habitat and allowing the tadpoles to exist in a very, very controlled stream yeah, environment. They did exceptionally well, and it seems to be like impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And in Central Africa, um, a lot of the frogs that I've worked on are these stream adapted frogs. And so, you know, there's just a lot of them that you know, we ha having some of these animals in captivity and working with them, um, you know, with biologists who are just really good at sort of replicating those stream environments and, and getting them to reproduce would 
would be so valuable for understanding aspects of their ecology, their natural history, their you know their rate of growth, their their longevity, th things that are just so hard to get from the wild um, would be really quite fun and, and interesting to be able to get to some of these animals were in captivity. Yeah, I mean, for the record, I I have no interest in keeping them if that if that's what it seems like, but. I, oh no! Well, you would not be alone. I mean, there's plenty of people that have been interested in these. There's every once in a while I'm contacted by yet another person interested in doing um, like local aquaculture in Cameroon, trying to actually raise these things sort of in in the wild, but in you know some sort of like system that's you know in, out in nature, but somehow still self-contained. Um, to my knowledge, that's never been able to take off. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't imagine having something that big in my house that could leap that far either. That would be just kind of beyond the realm of my, my comfort zone. It'd be cool to see them in a zoo, though. Yeah, one of my favorite facts about them was that uh, in the early 20th century, there is a joke scientific journal called Dopia, which was a riff of Copia. Uh, and in Dopia, there was a joke article about the call of the Goliath frog. And the, the punchline was, Oh, look at this giant frog. It must have, it would be so funny if it had a really high pitched call instead of a low call. Well, of course, the funny part is that Corral Goliath actually died <laughs> for years, was thought to be mute. Uh, there were no recorded calls for, you know, for decades. Uh, but now we actually know that they have very high frequency calls, <laughs> which is great because, you know, early in the 20th century, that was pitched as a joke about this species. And it turns out actually is uh, it's true. That's really funny. I love frog humor. <laughs> yes yeah yeah you guys it's your you know certain niche yeah yeah it's, it's it's appreciated in the in the in the community that i i swim around i in, know but. i always hope that you know i never run out of frog jokes yeah yeah those. yeah well um outside of the whole river ecosystem different oh. different species the infamous pixie pixiecephalus adspersus um, I'd had a guest on a while back. I had Dr. Caroline, I always have a hard time pronouncing her name, Lothar. Um, She was in South Africa, and she studied wild um, asparagus. Have you ever encountered those in the wild where you are? No, uh, pixies don't occur. Well, I, that's not totally true. You, you do get some pixicephalus across the Sahel. So that Sahel is basically that sort of dry, arid savanna zone that's sort of in between the sort of West African forest and the Sahara. So Sahel is referenced to like the shore in Arabic. So the shore of the Sahara, the sort of dry, arid savanna zone does have pixicephalus in it. Um, it's never an area that I've worked in because I mostly work in tropical forests. So Pixicephalus, uh, for the most part, most of the knowledge of pixies, though, is really from southern and eastern Africa, uh, where really that whole diversity of the, the family Pixicephalidae is concentrated is really in sort of southern, southeastern Africa. But interestingly, uh, there is a, a sister group of pixies called Aubria, uh, and Aubria basically looks like a cross between a Pixicephalus and a bullfrog, um, and they're aquatic. They live in swamps and water, like sort of foresty swamps in Central Africa. We have caught those. Uh, they actually have, you know, they have sort of more flattened heads, but they, they actually have skulls that are still sort of heavily built, just like a pixicephalus skull. Um, and, and those, what's really cool is that, you know, pixies are famous for attending their tadpoles and drying pools. The same is true for species of Aubria in tropical uh, 
wet tropical forests, you will actually find adult Aubrea attending uh, eggs or tadpoles, even in the sort of wet tropical forest, which is really cool. And that's the sister genus of Pyxocephalus. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of one on online now, and you're right. It's very, very, it's funny because there's actually a picture of Pyxocephalus as a comparison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's quite, it's a very impressive looking frog. The, the, the species that I'm looking at here it's almost got like a, an odd smirk to it, actually, which is kind of cool. Uh -huh. I was like, yeah, yeah. If you guys are listening at home and you're googling this stuff while you're listening, it's, they're pretty impressive. Yeah, Aubria for reference is A U B R I A. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at looks like Subsiscalata. Uh huh. Yeah, Subsiscalata. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, it's a pretty cool looking frog, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's really what's interesting about Pyxocephalidae, the whole family, is that. Uh, a lot of them are found in southern and eastern Africa. They tend to be not universally, but they tend to be more sort of like savanna, like maybe wetlands. They're not really like rich tropical forest species. Uh, but what's cool is that there's uh, the genus Aubrea sort of has colonized these wet tropical forests. And then uh, the genus Amyetia, you know, it also occurs in more forested ecosystems and actually gets all through the mountains of like the uh, – sort of Central Africa, like Rwanda, Uganda, Democratic Republic of Congo, and things like that. So while most of the families in one part of Africa, these other lineages have sort of colonized these different types of habitats in other parts. Well, one last species, and then um, uh -huh. we're, we're kind of winding out to the end, but uh, this is a project that you had worked on personally, I believe. This is the Lake Oku clawed frog. It looks like it's uh -huh. in the Xenopus genus. Yes, the Lake Oku clawed frog. Yes, among the uh, smallest uh, species of the genus Xenopus. So here's my question for you. Xenopus is, I mean, Xenopus is in invasive here in the U.S. in certain places, and uh, they seem to be like the frog equivalent of the axolotl. They do very well in captivity. They're a model organism. Labs breed them like crazy. How is this one species of Xenopus in such a bad state that it's critically endangered. How did that happen? Yeah, that's cool. So uh, there's a lot of species of Xenopus, first of all. So, uh, but there, let's see, there's a couple different parts to this story. So one is you've seen one is if you've seen a Xenopus, you've pretty much seen all Xenopus. They all look basically the same. And I feel confident as a comparative anatomist in saying they all look kind of the same. Um, but what's interesting about Xenopus species is that they're very different than all of almost all other frog species. And the reason for that, yes, you can think about what they look like and they live in the water, but there's another secret to them. So almost every species of Xenopus has a hybrid ancestry. So if you look across the living species of the genus Xenopus, there's only one species that's diploid like me and you. So there's only one species that inherited one set of chromosomes from mom, one from dad. All of the others are not diploid. There's tetraploids, octoploids, and dodecaploids. That means they have 12 sets of chromosomes, which is bonkers. And that sort of uh, the way that that happens is through a processes of hybridization of these different lineages that have different numbers of chromosomes hybridizing. Strange things happen uh, as cells are dividing early on in development, and they, those cells end up basically accumulating these large amounts of chromosomes. So why that happens? kind of unclear, but they're, you know, they've been a model system for studying genetics for many years. So, so Xenopus longipes, that's the Lake Oku clawed frog, is a dodecaploid species. It's a very small species. So it's a species of Xenopus that 
um, you know, is probably maybe two inches long as an adult, maybe even a little less. Um, this is a species that's known from a single lake. It's from the lake. It's called. It's from a lake called Lake Oku, which is on the top of Mount Oku. Mount Oku is the second tallest mountain in Cameroon. Um, so not at the summit, but farther down the mountain, there is a crater lake, a caldera, that's full of water. Uh, so the Cameroonian mountains are are all mostly, a lot of them are volcanic in origin. So there's a number of these crater lakes. So if you if you got any cichlid enthusiast, you will know of uh, crater lakes in Cameroon, like Lake Barambibo, which has a lot of endemic cichlid fish diversity in it. So Lake uh, Oku is much higher up. It's about, um, let's see, about 1,800 meters above sea level. Um, it's a, you know, it's a lake that you can easily see across. It's not a huge lake. And it has one species of frog in it, this species of Xenopus, Xenopus longipus. Um, what's kind of interesting about these frogs is that in the wild, they're very scrawny. And in fact, their name longipes means like long foot. Um, and I think the reason for that is that when you look at these animals um, in the wild, they look like they have enormous feet. But once they're in captivity and they're fed well, they just look like a normal xenopus. The feet don't even look that weird and long. I think a lot of a lot of the sort of strangeness of this animal, at least in the wild, come from the fact that nearly every individual in the wild is emaciated and sort of wasting away, which is totally weird and crazy. Um, I don't know of any other frog species in Africa that sort of has this as a phenomenon. Why is this the case? We don't really know. It could be that this is a really low productivity lake. There's not a lot to eat as an adult. Um, what's kind of cool is like all Xenopus species, uh, the tadpoles are filter feeders, right? So if you've seen a Xenopus species, a Xenopus tadpole, you've pretty much seen like any Xenopus tadpole. Um, and what's really amazing about these uh, Xenopus longipes tadpoles, at least in the wild, is they get to very large size, like way bigger than the adults. Uh, and they seem to be metamorphosing at effectively adult body size. Um, so we have, you know, uh, specimens we've caught in the field that are, you know, going through metamorphosis and we have adults. And I mean, they're effectively shrinking, uh, almost like the paradox frog, you know, as they as they metamorphose, they're getting to these small adult body sizes. Um, so when I was a grad student, um, and this is, I'm trying to think of exactly when this was, this is, wow, wow, like 16 years ago, um, doing field work in Cameroon, um, while I was there, you know, we and actually another group um, observed at Lake Oku a lot of dying frogs. And I had been there a couple years before and I had not you know, noticed, at least not noticed, dying frogs. Uh, so when we were there in 2006, um, a lot of dead and dying frogs at the lake edge. And that was like just a mystery, like what is happening here? Um, so we collected a lot of those animals. Uh, we brought them back to the U.S. Uh, we tested a lot of them for chytrid fungus, um, both from swabbing them to see, you know, could we actually get genetic data of the fungus off of these skin swabs to see that the, you know, the fungus would be infecting their skin, like you'd see in chytridium mycosis. Uh, we also actually had a lot of these animals done <laughs> bread loaf histology, like, you know, they embedded them in paraffin and sliced them from head to toe, right? Looking to see, is there any chytrid in the skin? Uh, is it, what is wrong with these animals? And that work was actually done by Alan Pessier, who is the pathologist who actually described chytrid fungus. So Alan found no chytrid. Our, our sort of genetic-based uh, test found no chytrid. 
but what Allen did find in these samples that was that all of them seemed to have atrophy. They had atrophy of their internal organs, uh, and they seemed to effectively be wasting away, which was a mystery. The craziest part is that the, quote, normal individuals that we collected in the field were just as wasting away as the ones that were dead. Um, so that's a mystery right there. Subsequently, um, hold on one sec. Sub subsequently, um, we have gone back many times to this lake, and and chytrid is definitely there. Whether or not chytrid fungus is causing these animals to to die in the wild is is not really clear. Um, one thing I can say, at least anecdotally, is that when we brought live animals, uh, live Xenopus of Xenopus longipes back from Cameroon to San Francisco uh, to be at the California Academy of Sciences to do some husbandry research and to put them on exhibit, one challenge that we had was a lot of those animals had chytrid. None of them died from chytrid, but all of them or many of them had chytrid. So it actually took us a lot of work to quarantine these animals, to you know treat them with itraconazole, to try to clear them of chytrid. Uh, so these are animals that clearly could have chytrid and not die because that was what was happening in captivity. It was hard to get rid of. Um, so one of the things that I was really excited about, about having these animals come back to the U.S. was uh, trying to bring them into the California Academy of Sciences Aquarium, which is where I was, I was previously based at the Calicad as a scientist, um, and working with the husbandry and the aquarium staff there to breed this frog and other frogs to understand more about their life history and natural history. Um, and they also double, you know, these are very sweet little Xenopus. I mean, if you've seen a lot of the Xenopus levis and things, I don't know if anybody would ever call it a sweet animal, but uh, Xenopus longipes are these very docile, just very tiny, just cute little aquatic frogs that paddle around. Um, that's exactly what they do in the wild. That's exactly what they do on exhibit. Uh, they're not in a hurry. <laughs> One of the most amazing experiences is to go to Lake Oku at night and shine your water in the lake, and you can stand on the water. It's not, I mean, the shore is only like two, three feet deep. Um, and as you're standing there, it, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these Xenopus. The water is perfectly clear and cold, and they're just paddling around. Um, what they're doing out there, really hard to know. Um, to me, this was a great example of such a strange little animal. You know, it's, it's, it has this crazy genetics to it. It has a natural history that's very tantalizing, that's not really well documented. Uh, this was a great example of bringing in a, an animal, uh, an African frog, into captivity where we could work with, you know, husband, people that were experts in husbandry to try to get more details of its natural history uh, to really understand these animals in the wild. That is one of the most bizarre, I, I that is one of the most bizarre stories I, I've, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss for words to, I'm, I mean, how, why would there only be one species of frog there? Why don't we start with yeah, that? Yeah, that's super interesting. So there is, um, there are a couple other species that occur on the lake, um, but one of them, uh, one of them is in the genus Phrynobotrachus, and that was actually a species that, for decades, was known to basically be a new species that occurred around the lake. It's not a, it's not an aquatic frog. It's more like a stream-adapted terrestrial frog. Uh, but there's little streams that feed into this lake, and so you would find this species of Phrynobotrachus, also called puddle frogs, around the lake. 
And there's a few other frogs that kind of live on the margins. Uh, but I've never seen tadpoles of another species in the lake. Um, it's just this one species of Xenopus. And, you know, maybe it's just because there's just not a lot to eat in this lake. Uh, if you, I had a grad student um, who was an aquarium biologist at the Calicad, Brian Fryermuth. And Brian's master's thesis was basically trying to get more details about the natural history of these animals. And Brian uh, showed up at 1,800 meters up in elevation at this crater lake in a wetsuit and a uh, snorkeling mask and uh, spent a lot of time swimming <laughs> out across the lake. You know, this, this is a deep crater lake and I'm high up on a mountain trying to actually see, like, what are these animals doing, like, way out in the lake? Do you see them out in the lake? Um, and this is a lake full of an, an uh, a freshwater sponge, which is crazy because it's way up on a tropical mountain. Um, and these frogs are just hanging out on these uh, freshwater sponges up in this lake. Um, kind of hard to know what they're doing. They're they're a great example to me. I mean, it's one that, and I'll just point out, well, the, the work at the Cal Academy hasn't really like taken off in the way that I, I had hoped it to, partly because I left. Um, but there is a group at the Zoological Society of London led by Ben Tapley, who's been working a lot with a captive population there. Um, trying to get more information about its biology and captivity. Um, and, you know, this is just a great opportunity. You know, there's so many frog species that we know they exist and we don't know a lot more. And being able to combine, you know, work in the field, work in the museum, and then work with live animals with people that are just really talented at keeping live animals. Um, those three sets of information really help us together tell the story about some of these poorly known species. That's incredible. I, I, I could do, I could go on and on and on for hours. I could, I mean, we're, we're kind of run out of time, but I, I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, anybody who says frogs are boring, I, I listen, listen to that story and tell me that they are not anything other than completely interesting. That's, that's Wow. That's a you know, there's a lot of amazing things about frogs. I think, you know, most people underestimate uh, them. They're tiny animals. Uh, they seem inconsequential. But, you know, like anything, when you study it closely, uh, you know, there's sort of magical doors that opened or suddenly you learn all these crazy sort of mind-blowing things about um, what seem at first like, you know, simple, uh, just simple, small animals, maybe not worth somebody's attention. But I think the more the more you sort of focus in on them, the more sort of uh, discoveries you make. Well, I have one last question for you, and sure. it concerns the 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 future of of African species, and it, it's it's become almost cliche to the you know to the point where we understand that amphibian biodiversity is under threat in in the New World, in in Central America, South America. Uh, we're concerned about caudates in the southeastern United or the whole eastern United States. What about Africa? Where does Africa fit into this picture here? Because I don't really hear too much about specific threats coming into African frog species the way that I do with other parts of the world. What, what can you tell us about that? Yes. Yeah, so interesting. Um, as mentioned, so let's see, there's kind of different threats here. So um, look, like anywhere on Earth, habitat loss is like one of the most uh sorry, is it's one of the worst things for amphibian species as well as all these other terrestrial forest vertebrates for sure. You know, lo losing habitat, degrading habitat, I mean, that's, we're just, that's obviously bad for a lot of these populations, especially ones that are, you know, found in only little tiny places on top of mountains. Uh, on top of that, 
there are a number of species that are eaten um, by humans. Uh, probably a lot of these are not drastically affected. So for instance, like crown bullfrogs across West Africa are harvested in huge numbers and dried and eaten, uh, but it's also extremely common frog. Um, you know, it might affect some local populations, but unlikely to drive the species to extinction. On the other hand, we have, you know, species that have very small distributions like the Goliath frog or its sister species, Canarella robusta. I mean, these have very small distributions. They're big frogs. They probably take quite a while to grow that large. Uh, and they are eaten and hunted by people for food. There's a lot of other, you know, interesting species, especially in places like Cameroon. Uh, hairy frogs are eaten. Um, a lot of other sort of related species, the hairy frogs are eaten. Um, uh, anyway, there, there's a lot of animals that are specifically looked for for human consumption. The sort of uh, the more insidious threat is, you know, is habitat destruction and disease. So in the last 20 years, um, we have seen substantial population declines in some areas of Africa for frogs. Uh, because for a very long time, there was this hypothesis that chytrid was spread around the world by, you know, from Africa uh, via African clawed frogs and sort of spread everywhere, uh, that a lot of biologists, I think, kind of thought, well, it came from Africa, probably not a big deal. I think the reality is quite different. Um, so first of all, there, we're still sort of struggling to catch up um, to understanding the diversity of, of chytrids across Africa, um, the, the ways that they infect animals uh, and frogs in Africa. Um, there's just simply, we're lagging behind the knowledge that's in, say, South America, Central America, Asia, Australia, North America. We just don't have the same amount of like sur disease surveillance data. But I can tell you this, when I was a graduate student and I had literally no idea what I was doing, because remember, I'm a paleontologist looking for live frogs. I was not an expert at finding things. I had no problems. I found tons of things. I stumbling and found frogs. Um, and, you know, I had a, a small crew of uh, Cameroonian biologists working with me, most of whom were lizard scientists. So again, not really experts on catching frogs. Um, found lots and lots of frogs in all the habitats we looked at. If I go today with my graduate students to a mountain in Cameroon, we are hard pressed to find almost any of those species in the mountains. A lot of those species seem to have had extremely large population declines uh, to the point that you just can't find them. You know, we're not even trying to measure abundance. We're just trying to measure, is there a frog here anymore? Um, and that's probably related to a couple things. It's related to habitat change, uh, habitat degradation. We have a lot more agrochemicals being used at rural farms far up mountains. Um, those chemicals are going straight into the streams where a lot of these frogs breed. Um, certainly, chytrid is like everywhere now. Uh, we do know that there are frog, African frogs that exhibit the same signs of chytridia mycosis that you know South American frogs do. Uh, so there's certainly some of these species are reacting to chytrid in the same way, which seems bad. Um, you know, and and there are areas of Africa um, where we are seeing large declines of species. Um, one of the challenges, as you might guess, is that comparing, say, cent you know, Costa Rica and Panama uh, to Republic of Congo and Gabon is really hard because there's a lot more eyes of amphibian biologists, of ecotourists, people looking for these animals in places like Costa Rica. Uh, we have a lot fewer eyes on the ground, whether or not they're 
uh, biologists from Europe or America, the U.S., uh, or or from Cameroon and Gabon. We just have so many fewer people looking at these frogs and doing this work that we're probably just missing things. We're missing disappearances happening uh, before our eyes just because we don't have the same sort of sampling effort we do elsewhere in the world. That's an interesting point. I never would have even thought of it that way. Yeah, I guess, I mean, there's, you're right. There's less, less people looking, less stuff you're going to find. Well, yeah. Oh. <laughs> the more well, people you, looking, the less you're going to find. <laughs> you say, when was the last time the species was found? And it's like, okay, well, it was 60 years ago. And it's like, when was the last time someone looked? Oh, well, 60 years ago. <laughs> you know, so that's a challenge that we face. You know, we, we just simply lack a lot of the sort of long-term data uh, for many areas. And so, you know, there are species you might think, oh, they're lost species. It could be extinct. And it's like, okay, well, who was the last person to go look? Um, and some places like Cameroon, which have been, you know, the last 30 years, really, um, you know, pr pretty, a pretty good place for biologists to go and work. Um, it's a little easier than some other places. Uh, we do have, you know, the data to show that, like, wow, some of these species are just gone. Uh, or they're at least extremely hard to find, and they weren't like that 20 years ago. Yeah, that's rough. Well, David, I want to thank you so much. I mean, I, I could go on and on and on with this. But I, I want to thank you so much, though, for taking this time to really walk us through all of this information, and it's been so much. I'm really grateful to you for uh, coming on the show and, and sharing all this with us. Well, no problem. Always happy to talk about frogs. And uh, thanks again for the invitation. I my, really appreciate it. My pleasure. And if, if the listeners wanted to find out more about you and um, some of your research, where would you, where would you direct them to go? Uh, you can look at my lab webpage. Uh, if you Google uh, Dave Blackburn Frog, I promise you'll find me. Uh, you can also Google the University of Florida and herpetology. Another quick way to, to turn me up. Um, but yeah. That's uh, an easy way to find our, our, you know, our lab webpage and the resources we have here at the museum. Yeah, and I'm going to include some of those links in the show notes as well. So uh, listeners okay, out there can just great. click on them and, and get right to them. Sounds great. Well, Dan, thanks again. Thanks very much for the invitation. No, thank you. Thank you. We'll have to do it again sometime. All right. All right. All right, everyone. Uh, again, great topic, African frogs, taxonomy, something I've been looking to do for quite some time. And I really hope you guys enjoyed it. I had a couple of people reach out to me a couple of times in the past about African frogs, and uh, I'm glad I found the right person. And, uh, you know, it was great having David on the show. So other than that, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Catch up with you again soon.